from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. You're also talking about houses as in rival houses. As in community. So houses are tribes, they're teams. And so Villa Diva is the capital of our greater circle. Um, but no, St. Louis is a city of houses, whether you're talking about the gay community, the straight people, anyone, anybody. Uh, we are a tribal place where we all have our, our house. And so those of us who don't realize that we have a house, we're maybe in denial oh, over yeah, our lack uh, of house. You're in a house. I'm in a house. <laughs> everybody's in one, even if it's a family-related house. Um, this is a place where everybody, their roots go deep. I'm Sarah Fetsky. Chris Ando's new book, House of Villa Diva, takes its name from the, quote, ornate but rickety home he and his husband Cage purchased in St. Louis's Tower Grove South neighborhood. But the book isn't just about the 110-year-old home and, in Ando's words, its deliciously pretentious name. It's about their circle of friends and frenemies. It's about the St. Louis he sees through a transplant's perceptive eyes and loves for all its failures. As a journalist, Chris Ando writes for the Riverfront Times and St. Louis Magazine. He's a former columnist for The Vital Voice, and from 2017 to 2020, he was editor-in-chief of Out in STL. Full disclosure, I hired him for that job, but I haven't been involved with that publication for about two years now. So, Chris Ando, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So, Chris, when you bought your home in Tower Grove South, you write in this book, it was like we had the budget for a new Honda Civic, but opted for a big old Cadillac. What do you mean by that? <laughs> it's a house that most people in Tower Grove would have gutted. It has the original woodwork, um, some un uneven floors, some soft spots in the floors, the original plaster, some original wiring. And so I talked to people after the fact that said, oh, I looked at that house, but it would cost so much to modernize it. We wanted the house for what it was. And so uh, but, of course, it is a high-maintenance house. A high-maintenance house. You refer to it at one point in the book as this big old drag queen of a house with the stage name Mona Moneypit. Exactly. She's been expensive. Oh, yeah. She always <laughs> needs something. But it's a labor of love, as you know, when you have a big old house. Yeah, and so many people who are buying these old homes in Tower Grove South, they end up basically gutting them. They yeah. paint the walls the same shade of gray. Right. You know, the gentrifier gray. You can see everywhere there. You have not done that to this house. No, and we, in fact, decorated it uh, not exactly historically but to look like it was always there. You know, the plate rail has plates on it, things like that. And I guess it, we were successful because our roommate Marcus at uh, one time uh, revealed that he thought we bought the house furnished. Oh, nice. Right. So it looks like it belongs. It looks like it's always been there. Now, when you call this book House of Villa Diva, you're not just talking about this house in the literal sense of the roof over your heads, even though that's part of the book. You're also talking about houses as in rival houses. As in community. So houses are tribes. They're teams. And so Villa Diva is the capital of our greater circle. Um, but no, St. Louis is a city of houses, whether you're talking about the gay community, the straight people, anyone, anybody, uh, we are a tribal place where we all have our, our house. And so those of us who don't realize that we have a house, we're maybe in denial oh, over yeah. our lack of house? You're in a house. I'm in a house. <laughs> Everybody's in one, even if it's a family-related house. Um, this is a place where everybody, their roots go deep, and everybody has a, a community. 
And as you get, as comes across so well in this book, um, you say there's a there's a gay uh, community here. You might be part of this house. There's not just one LGBTQ house. No. There are some warring factions here. Your book has a lot of fun with this. Absolutely, yes. There are rivalries, uh, long histories of collaboration and conflict. People that were part of the same house, they split, then later they'll reunite. Uh, we have all of it, and I'm really fascinated by it. Um, you know, and people talk about drama and say, oh, I don't do drama, whatever. Everything's drama. You watch a sports game, there's drama. There's two players that don't get along. You know, that's kind of life. And I think we're all interested in seeing how everything, uh, how everyone maneuvers and navigates. You had a great passage in the book. This has to do with a squabble that was happening in Oklahoma City, where you used to live. Right. You're from Oklahoma. Um, and you're contrasting this with the St. Louis scene. What happened in Oklahoma City, a man named Shane was arrested after a friend overdosed. A big fight broke out about this on Facebook. And you write, what was so interesting to me about the Facebook thread in Oklahoma City was nobody in the hundreds of comments played the victim. They were all scrapping as equals. Hollow threats to sue were as extreme as it got. Had it been St. Louis, Shane would have had an army of defenders who would have said those speaking out were bullying him to suicide and that being against Shane's actions meant they were against an entire demographic of people. Someone would have wailed that the conversation should be deleted at once. Someone would have tried to get other in the thread fired. Somebody would have claimed down was up and wrong was right. The contrasting simplicity was remarkable. Is St. Louis's scene unusually fractious? You know, you said a quote one time on the radio. You said St. Louisans have sharp elbows. And that stuck with me because that's absolutely right. Uh, in a lot of places, if somebody in your circle does something a little bit off the, you know, out of the ordinary or, or that you can't Really, it's not really defensible. You will at least d differentiate differentiate yourself from that action. Uh, in St. Louis, you'll just strap yourself on board the crazy train. <laughs> you know, if you're you've got to defend your house, right? If someone does something that's completely out there, I've seen it time and again. Instead of saying, "Well, that's my friend, but I disagree with that," they'll just strap themselves in and go go for it. And and you point out in this book that that makes it hard sometimes for people in St. Louis to give criticism to others. You've gone out actively, sometimes seeking constructive criticism, and you feel like people can't be honest here because they're so worried about maybe setting off a, a house that's going to pick a fight with them that they don't even want. It can be, and it can be partly Midwest politeness, which can seem contradictory there. But Joan Lipkin in, in the theater community used to be a critic, and she said it's really hard to be a critic because in, in a small pond, yeah. <laughs> you know, because and so, uh, yeah, that can be a big factor. And yet in your journalism, you haven't shied away from the darker side of the communities that you know about. You've written about the troubles of, of meth addiction as it affected yes. your circle. Mm -hmm. You wrote about the problem of sex addiction. Um, have people given you some pushback for your oh, willingness yes. to, to speak publicly? That is an understatement. Uh, I have been in so much trouble and so much controversy. And when I wrote for Vital Voice, uh, boards of directors would call on Darren to let me go. Darren being the editor-in-chief. I'm an editor-in-chief. Um, so no, but what happens is I think I've worn a lot of people down eventually. Uh, this book, for instance, I really haven't had much blowback on it. The first book, Delusions of Grandeur, uh, a lot of hysterics around that. And this one, I'm kind of disappointed. Everybody <laughs> just kind of shrugs it off. You kind of like the drama. I like a little bit. You know, it's like you kind of got to calibrate it. You don't want too much. But uh, yeah, I've been surprised this one's been... Uh, 
everyone's been fine with it so far. So one of the things about you, even though you're willing to speak very openly about these things that so many people in town want to sort of uh, uh, push under the rug, um, it's so clear that you love St. Louis. And as as um, as proof of that, and, and as you get into some of the things you love about it, I want to see if you can read an excerpt from this book. This is from an essay you wrote when you were becoming the inaugural editor-in-chief of Out in STL. Uh, Chris Ando, can you take it from here? Yes. 20 years ago, I was living in Oklahoma City and decided to spread my wings and move to a larger metropolitan area. I wanted to be within a comfortable day's drive of my family in Tulsa, and I had a few options, none of them ideal. There was no adventure in moving to Dallas. It was full of insufferable Oklahomans who acted like their 200-mile move was akin to conquering Paris. Kansas City seemed pleasant but was too similar to my hometown, and Denver, the capital of the state that had recently passed the Homophobic Amendment 2 didn't sound like a welcoming place. But there was a mysterious dark horse 500 miles to the northeast, the last eastern metropolis, St. Louis, and nobody had anything good to say about it. Oh, it's awful, began a friend who had traveled to the city on business. The best way I can describe it is it's like Gotham City. It's really old and crumbling with soot-stained buildings, crowded row houses, smokestacks. Everything I heard only piqued my interest. This was the adventure I was looking for. And without knowing a soul in the city, I made it my home. I've since wandered around, living from San Francisco to New York. But this place has remained my muse, inspiring my book and pulling me back time and again. Some cities have no memories. Some are just nice, sedate places without roots, while others have transient populations and ephemeral cultures. In such cities, clean slates are easy to come by. St. Louis is not among them. Ours is an opera of larger-than-life characters with long histories of collaboration and conflict. Ours is a haunted city that rises, a passionate city that burns. Ours is a saga to keep a writer like myself busy for a lifetime. And that is an excerpt from Chris Ando's new book, House of Villa Diva. Um, it, it's got just a million stories about the naked city, also some stories about the clothed city, but a lot of wonderful parts in here. And hearing you describe St. Louis, you really see this in a romantic way that I think maybe people who aren't as familiar with some of the, the crumbling older neighborhoods, they might have a much different view of it. They do. And I think that I am as enough of an outsider to see what's interesting and enough of an insider to know what's going on. And so that's how I would describe, you know, why I see it. But it really helped living in other places and traveling. Uh, I, I think people sometimes don't understand the level of gentrification in a place like San Francisco. 20 years ago, 75% of San Franciscans were renters, most of them on rent control. And so you had all those wonderful characters from the Haight-Ashbury, Summer 69, uh, but since then, landlords have learned how to exploit loopholes, and the purge is phenomenal what's happening out there. And there's just nothing left of of that old San Francisco. It's all tech. Mm-hmm. And, of course, anytime you say all, you're – you know, you're – Of course. But still, it – it's just the soul is, has been lost. If you're standing in the middle of the heart of New Orleans and you look at those wonderful louvered shutters, it's not New Orleans characters behind those shutters. It's Airbnb. <laughs> you know, yeah. so all these cities are parodies, are theme park versions of what they were. 
And I'm so drawn to St. Louis for its authenticity, its layers and layers of history going back, as you touched on in the last segment, um, to the native, you know, Cahokia Mounds, the largest civilization north of present-day Mexico, uh, writings from French explorers about the Piasol bird and how that struck terror in their heart when they saw it. Yeah, there's, and then from us being the fourth largest city, and there's just so much here, and, uh, and I love the people here, I love the characters here. So housing prices here, as in a lot of parts of the country, have been going up, and they've been going up much higher in some of your most beloved neighborhoods, these these neighborhoods that flew under the radar for so long. Right. They're being discovered by, frankly, people with young kids, um, people with a lot of money. Do you think that they're going to drive out some of the fascinating circus that you chronicle in this book? Somewhat. So I live, you know, why I do live in Tower Grove South, uh, we call our corner of the neighborhood Gray Fox Hills. It's the less gentrified southeast corner surrounded by our, our local bar, drag bar, Gray Fox. And that is kind of like the Tower Grove South of 20 years ago. You know, it's very, very queer. And uh, everybody, you know, talks to each other. Um, fortunately, this city has a lot of room to play with. But, you know, JJ's tonight's there last night. They they sold the building for, I think, close to $2 million. And, um, and for those who don't know JJ's, this was a seminal, it's, it's a bear bar. A bear bar, the biggest bar in the, the biggest uh, gay bar in the city. Uh, 21 years, they had a great run. Um, people from around the world knew about JJ's. And when they bought that 21 years ago, that was a bombed out area below the highway. <laughs> you know, nobody cared about it. And now it's worth millions of dollars. And uh, and so I'm thinking that we're going to continue to see a southward shift. South Broadway is still very reasonable. Um, so fortunately, we do have a lot, a lot of room to go before we see people uh, totally tossed out, although gentrification is certainly happening. So a lot of people still think of the Grove, Forest Park Southeast, that neighborhood, as still being the city's um, top gay neighborhood. As, as you mentioned, a lot of those bars have been leaving. Um, JJ's is just the latest example of that. You made the case when you were editing out in STL that Tower Grove South was actually the city's best LGBTQ neighborhood. For, I think that the readers voted for that. The readers voted Tower Grove South, and that is still, I would still say that's true as far as who lives there. So the Grove has always been more commercial, and Tower Grove South is, of course, residential, except for Gray Fox when it comes to community businesses. But uh, yeah, it's amazing how many of us are in Tower Grove South, especially in the more affordable uh, bottom end of it. In the, the Gray Fox. Gray Fox Hills. Gray Fox yeah. Hills. I love that you have a name for everything. Right. You know, one of the other major threads that, that runs through this book is your love of Alton. At one point in one of the biographies, uh, you called you said, Chris Ando is, quote, currently married to Tower Grove South, but flaunts his torrid affair with Alton. What makes Alton such a touchstone for you? Alton, well, talk about history, talk about the paranormal. Um, you know, so many things. Alton has, I think it's one of the most underrated places, bar none. You know, it has topography with hills as steep as San Francisco. Um, it's historic architecture. It's known as one of the most haunted towns in the nation. And one reason I believe that is, is when they deconstructed the Civil War prison, which was the site of about 1,500 deaths, they used that limestone to build every house in town. <laughs> so, so that puts some bad juju out there. I think that kind of spread. But no, Alton is a magical place. And what's funny about it is I met my husband because he I love Alton and he's from there. So I was up exploring one day 
And that's how I ended up meeting him. You know, so my love of the city drew me to the love of my life. And so now you have an excuse to just keep visiting. It sounds like you do. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of friends up there. His family's up there. Uh, but no, I really love it. I, I would like to live on those bluffs overlooking the river. But uh, since he lived there for 30 years of his life, he's not in a hurry. <laughs> he was ready to get out. Yeah. <laughs> so your husband, Cage, um, you speak of him so winningly in this book. He just comes across as such a wonderful person and, and your relationship comes across so vividly. But you also make clear in this book that this is not a monogamous relationship. You guys are married, but that doesn't mean you're not open to others. Right. And that's pretty common anymore. Um, so it's not, you know, it's it's all more about honesty and just being direct. And, you know, when I was 40 when I was when we got together and it just wasn't a big priority uh, to focus on uh, monogamy. And that's not difficult for you. No, <laughs> no, it isn't. I, I feel like I, and I'm speaking from my own house here, right. this, this unnamed house that I live in. I think for a lot of straight people, that concept sure. seems wild. Well, I think. It's. I think women are very much wired differently than men. And so when you get two men together, I think it's just a little, it's less of a priority, perhaps. You might have some people say that's a very politically incorrect right, thought right there. Right, but, right. but that's the journalism of Chris Ando. Right, that's it. <laughs> so, Chris, something else I wanted to talk to you about today, in addition to some of the great long-form stories you've done, really chronicling some characters and, and some major issues, you've also been praised as one of the city's great interviewers. How do you get people to spill? I think being genuinely interested, being relaxed. You know, we meet over drinks or over dinner or at Villa Diva, and we just get to talking. And before I know it, they're really telling me some some really important things. And, and I stand by them through the whole process. And, you know, I try not to do a gotcha or run anything they're uncomfortable with. But trust is built, and people know that, and they seek me out. And have you ever had a case where somebody told you something and, and you built that trust and they ended up really regretting putting it out there? Oh, yeah. That happens. I mean, people get self-conscious sometimes once things go out. And, and people are always evolving and changing. So maybe they were proud of something or indifferent about something at one point, And then there was someone new who frowns upon what they had said in the past. Uh, I've had people have problems getting work. Um, the wife of Dustin Mitchell down in Dallas. Uh, this is one of your favorite stories. Dustin right? Mitchell is, a, I, I, I say he's the most prolific gay con man to ever come out of St. Louis. And he ended up, read the book, he ended up getting married to a woman down there. And she was very great about letting me write about the whole thing uh, with no regrets. And, and very open to very the details openly, she got into. Um, but, uh, and she never did regret saying any of it. But when she, you know, when people Googled her, it was becoming an issue. So how do you deal with that when you're getting people saying, can you take this down? Can you change this? They've kind of trusted you with their life. On the other hand, you came in. You made it clear you were a journalist. They knew what they were getting into. Right. Yeah, it's just explained, you know. And, and they're, I mean, if you are honest and direct with people, they know they know that there's really nothing you can, you can do at that point. Um, as far as removing stories, uh, it's just such a can of worms. And there's been two or three times throughout my history, usually on my personal sites, uh, people demand I re remove something just because they're mad about it. And uh, they're not appreciative when you do remove it. They, they act like they have your head on a spear and that they're, they're vindicated that you did something wrong. It's You've not, learned the hard way. Yeah. They, they don't take that graciously. No, no. It's not like, oh, thank you. Or at least not even thanking me, but dropping it. You know, instead, they just are, are off. 
awful about it. Well, Chris, there's always such good controversy around you. You do such a good job of approaching it with humor and and just finding the joy of, of living in situations where other people might be tearing their hair out. What's the thought you want to leave people with uh, when it comes to Villa Diva? I think it's just to kind of shift into neutral and enjoy the ride. You know, it's it's people get so you know, serious. I laugh at myself. I think you have to. You have to. You can't take yourself too seriously. There's people who are written about maybe less than flattering in the first book that grew to love being in the first book, and their stories are in this one, you know. And I think as long as you don't go below the belt, uh, it's it works out. Well, Chris Ando, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.